So 2 Peter chapter 3. He's coming on the heels of scoffers who say, where is the promise of Christ coming? Verse 4, and we'll pick it up here at verse 8. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness." And now our text, starting at verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, as we now seek to learn from your holy word, I pray that you would unstop ears and open eyes to hear the word. Lord, may we feast on the greatness of the scriptures, the authority of your word, and what you have written. And I pray that you'd give me wisdom to speak faithfully, and that in all things your name is glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as I said, we've been working through our series here, and in Second Peter, the challenge to the second coming of Christ is at the forefront throughout the whole letter, really. And Peter has been giving his defense of the coming of Jesus Christ, the judgment that is coming, and the renewal of all things. And notice in verse 14, it opens up with the word, wherefore. Now, this is not therefore, but wherefore. That's a different Greek word. And it's important because when we say therefore, we conclude something. When we say wherefore, dia in the Greek, it means on account of which. We're actually taking what we've just learned and propelling forward into action. So take the knowledge of the coming of Jesus Christ and let it propel you forward into action. And Peter now gives us the action that we need to take from the knowledge of Jesus' return. You see, the heartbeat of the church has always been a heartbeat of expectation and a heartbeat of hope. And that's exactly what Peter says next. He says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things. We last time looked at that word, look for, and it is stressing, as it does in verse 12 and in verse 13, the idea of an intentional 
earnest gazing and hoping and expecting for Jesus Christ to come again. In fact, if you're familiar at all with church history, particularly the Apostles' Creed, written in the first mention of it anyways in 215 A.D., Part of the creed says this about Jesus Christ. It says, He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. You see, the church of all ages has always had expectancy before it because it knows we are pilgrims. This is not home. We can get really comfortable, but this is not home for us, isn't it? Now notice in the text... Verse 14 here, he says, Wherefore, beloved. It's one of Peter's favorite words. And outside of the large epistle to the Romans, Peter uses the word beloved in this small letter more than any other letter in the Bible, in the New Testament. Together, we as believers are of the household of faith that is together longing for that great day of the Lord's return. Let us cultivate not just a church where we individually look for Jesus. I'm waiting for Jesus. No, let us be a church, a community that longs for Jesus Christ to come back. Ere long, dear brothers and sisters, we will be with our Savior and our Lord. Ere long, our trials will give way to triumph. Ere long, the sun, as it rises in the morning and dispels the darkness and the warmth of the sun starts to come upon this earth. So the Son of Righteousness is rising with healing in His wings. And one day, all the darkness will be gone and all the warmth of Jesus Christ will just flow into the hearts of His beloved. Oh, what a wonderful word that is. Beloved, we long for his return, don't we? The ransom family of God then will be finally home. I can't wait for that day. Now notice, if you remember the idea of bookends in theology. You know a book has covers. And so in theological terms, often in the Bible, there will be bookends where you have a front cover and a back cover, as it were, and squishing all your thoughts inside of it. So we have a bookend happening here because... At verse 8, Peter talks with the same word, but beloved. So he's got the front cover of the book, and he's unpacked what the beloved expect. And now in verse 14, he has the back cover of the book. So he has bookended these things with that. But he also bookends this section in verse 8 and in verse 14 with the only two imperatives, the only two commands in this entire section. And in verse 8, the command is this, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. And now in verse 14, once he's, he's dispelled the ignorance, as it were, he says, Now that you know these things, seeing that you look for such things, what? Be diligent. Be diligent. You see, a stagnant church at root is an ignorant church. We need knowledge And I'm not just talking about head knowledge here. We can all go and do our catechisms. That's easy. You can memorize scripture. You can regurgitate what your parents want you to regurgitate. But I'm talking about epigenosis, the heart knowledge. When a church has that, it is alive. And a church that is alive will then diligently 
vibrantly grow in Jesus Christ. And so Peter wants us to know Jesus inwardly. Now the word be diligent in the text, the command then, is another form of the word we saw last time in verse 12, spudazzo. Remember that word? Hasting the day of the Lord, hurrying it on. You hear speed in there, maybe? Well, if verses 8 through 14 are a bookend, the word spudazzo is a bookend of the entire letter. Because look back at chapter 2, or chapter 1, verse 5. Right out of the gate, after all the introductions, Peter says this, and besides this, giving all diligence, there's our word, add to your faith, there's the command. The first command in the entire letter is encapsulated with diligence, spudazzo. And now at the end of the letter, after summarizing his whole argument, he uses the same word, give all diligence. So if you were going to summarize, Peter, it would simply be this. Jesus is coming again, therefore hasten on, be diligent, be active. Don't just sit on your hands as a believer. Let your entire life be consumed with Jesus and his return. In a hostile culture such as ours is increasingly becoming, and with the sure day of judgment, and as lambs in the midst of wolves, the Bible says hurry onward because we are prone to dilly-dally, aren't we? We are prone to settle in, to build our homes, to build our empires, to hand over our states to our children, and to forget that return of Jesus Christ. And so notice particularly what Peter says in the rest of the verse when he says, seeing you look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Now, what would it mean when he says that you may be found of him? What does that mean? It's kind of a strange way of approaching the day of the Lord, be found. What does that mean? Well, it means this, the day of the Lord will be a day of inquiry. He's going to find you, as it were, metaphorically, a certain way. He will discover, as it were, who you really are. It will be a day in which the judge of the whole earth will reveal the secret thoughts and intents of the heart. You and I will be laid bare and be discovered, just like Adam and Eve were discovered and found of God. It's no wonder that this language of discovering is used when you think of the context where Peter talks about fire. This whole section, the day of the Lord, has three or four references to this consuming fire. Well, what does a fire do? A fire blazes through something and discovers what things really are made out of. Are they combustible or are they fireproof? as the fire blazes forward. What will be found in our lives that is not combustible? What things in our lives will carry forward into eternity? That's what Peter's asking us to consider. What is combustible and what isn't? How will you be found? It's a very serious question. Notice it says that you will be found of him. 
This is important. And you might be thinking, well, why is he getting so detailed on all these words here? Well, perhaps it's because we, you and I, are prone to be so busy wondering about what others think of us, our neighbors, our friends, our family members, that we fail to remember that the only audience that really matters is him. We live quorum Deo in the presence of God, and how are you going to be found according to his judgment? You see, the fear of man and trying to live up to your neighbor's expectations, your parents' expectations as the sole and final arbiter can cripple you. But when God is your ultimate lens, when you're looking at him, then you've got a whole different view of life because the fear of man cripples, it distracts, it destroys. But the fear of God crowns, it delights, and it satisfies. And so who are you fearing? Now, what is the right way to be found on that day? Notice what it says, in peace, in peace, shalom, in Hebrew, right? You will be found either with the peaceable countenance of God upon you or with his severe frown of wrath. And so Peter describes what he means here when he says, without spot and blameless. Now, if you know your Bibles, you know those terms are loaded with significance, aren't they? Where do we see those terms so often get used in the Bible? Without spot and blameless. For like a couple thousand years, Israel's history was rich with the sacrificial system where lambs had to be offered. And the only lambs that were allowed to be used in the worship of God and in the atonement were lambs without spot and blemish. They had to be acceptable before God. Now we know from the Bible, that all of that foreshadowed Jesus Christ, the spotless robes of Jesus, right? And on the day of judgment, it will be Christ's spotlessness, the fact that he is without blame and without blemish that will surround us as an asbestos around us, and we will be fireproof in Jesus Christ himself, which is amazing. We will be judged by Jesus, but everybody that is in Jesus is already covered by his arms of refuge and his spotlessness. He alone is our plea on that day. Now, having said all that, I don't think that's what Peter's referring to in this text. But it is the foundation of the text. So it's important to stress. So what is he referring to? He's not referring to the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is actually referring to the actual lives of believers. And he's contrasting them with the scoffers. Now how do we know that? It is because if you remember back in chapter 2 verse 13. Turn with me there. Just one page back. And he's talking about the false teachers. Look at verse 13. And they shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. And then it says this, spots they are and blemishes. So the scoffers with all their frivolous, godless lifestyles are spots and blemishes. Well, could they then go into the holy sanctity of God's presence? Absolutely not. And so he says, you know the day is coming, so don't be like them. Be holy. Live diligently to be a sanctified Christian and to honor his name. Do you suppose Jesus actually cares how you live now? Or do you think that's just pie in the sky stuff because Jesus forgave me anyways and I can kind of do what I want? Is that Christianity? 
Do you suppose Jesus cares how you speak to your parents? Do you suppose he values that you live honestly with kindness, thankfulness, and contentment? Does that matter to Jesus? I think we know the answer, don't we? The Bible says, for example, this is one we don't think of often, to serve the Lord with gladness. Do we do that? The Puritan Thomas Watson writes this, serve the Lord with gladness. He says, it reflects upon a master when the servant is always drooping and sad. And so when God's people hang their heads, it looks as if they did not serve a good master. A Christian's cheerful look glorifies God. Religion does not take away our joy, but it actually refines it. It does not break our viol, but tunes it and makes the music sweeter. You see, serve the Lord with gladness is part of that way in which we can live lives that honor him, that have no spots, that we are holy. Have you ever heard of Henry Martin, the missionary? He was an outstanding scholar in Cambridge, England, right around the time of Napoleon, so 1800s. But he left it all behind and went to India in the dark places of Calcutta, and then he went on to Persia. He became a Bible translator. One of his good friends was a minister, Charles Simeon. If you want to read an interesting account, read the account of Charles Simeon, an interesting man. Simeon was his good friend and mentor, and Simeon commissioned a painting to be made of Henry Martin, who was now in India. And so you can just imagine, this is all by boat, so the the message gets out. And in Calcutta, India, somebody paints a portrait of his friend, Henry Martin. That thing goes back to England, and again, put some time in between here. It comes to Simeon's church. Simeon hangs it in the vestry, which is the place where you would have church meetings, kind of like the consistory room. And he hangs it up there, just above the fireplace. Why would he do that? Simeon's biographer writes this. He says, years afterwards, looking at that picture, Simeon would say of his, to his guests, there, there is that blessed man. What an expression of countenance. No one looks to me as he does, and he never takes his eyes off me and seems always to be saying, be serious, be in earnest. Don't trifle, don't trifle, don't trifle. Simeon would then say to his guests, I won't trifle. Henry Martin would die that same year that the painting was on its way back, at the age of 31 in Turkey. He pressed every minute of his brief life for the advance of the gospel and living a life worthy of Jesus Christ. Dear people, do not trifle. Don't waste your life on trivialities, on fluff. Don't spend your best on what matters least. Every day, hundreds of souls are plummeting into eternity, and we're so busy with stuff and accumulating more combustibles. Don't trifle. Take the image of Simeon there who would look to his friend as an impetus to press forward, to hasten to that great day. Don't trifle. Let us value most what God values most. You see, nothing done for Jesus Christ, 
Nothing done for his name is a waste. Never. Any investment in Christ's kingdom is not a poor one, but a rich one. And so give all diligence in this temporary place to pursue holiness so that you will increasingly be conformed to your home in heaven because that is a place of absolute holiness and sanctity. So warm your hearts today for home. This leads me to a second point, and I don't think I actually mentioned the point. So first point was a holy manner. The second one here is a consistent message. The last one will be a trusting mindset. So holy manner and now a consistent message. It is here that Peter makes an unexpected turn. And if you were reading along in the text, you're thinking, well, what's Peter doing? So what is he doing? Let's look at verse 15. He says, an account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, according, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. And so he brings up the Apostle Paul out of the blue. Why bring him up? What's going on? It is because the false teachers, the scoffers, seized on the Apostle Paul's teachings to advance their own agenda. And so what Peter is doing is he's taking Paul back into the apostolic fold. He's saying, no, no, no. Paul isn't teaching what you guys think he's teaching. I'm putting him back with the apostles. You can't twist his letters. Thank you very much. And so notice again the word beloved. He calls him the beloved brother. Now, do you remember that that actually should raise... Well, you might remember what Peter, Paul did to Peter, and this should spark some concern for you. What did Paul do to Peter? Remember Galatians? They're in Antioch. And uh, Peter starts pulling rank because he's a Jew and separates himself from the Gentiles. Remember that account? It's in Galatians 2. And then Paul writes this. He says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Now, this wasn't a private chit-chat. He didn't just pull him into a side room and said, Peter, you shouldn't really be doing that, right? You know what he does. And he says it. He says, Before them all, he reprimanded them. And now Peter says of Paul, my beloved brother, Paul. You see, I actually think that Peter loved Paul the more for it. Because Paul was right. And Peter was wrong in this. You see, the apostles are one in ministry, one in faith. And we should not pit them against each other. But they speak together. And even the greatest of ministers are sinners saved by grace. And no minister is above reproach because we only look to Christ who is without reproach. And so there will be days and seasons when we need to take our ministers, our elders and our teachers and remind them of God's truths. So if we should not be above reproof, we should also not have the pride then to hold grudges. Psalm 141 verse 5 says this, Let the righteous smite me, it shall be kindness. Let the righteous smite me, it shall be kindness. Now notice, Peter doesn't just say he's beloved, he's a brother. He says he's our beloved brother. You see, Paul of men may have been hijacked by the scoffers, but he rightly belonged not just to Peter, to the church. 
He was one of the brotherhood of believers, the family of God. And so Peter is not only confident to stand shoulder to shoulder with the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentile, he also then notices what he says next. He recognizes the Apostle Paul's uncommon wisdom when he says this, also according to the wisdom given unto him. You see that in the text? And look at the word. Notice he says, the wisdom given unto him. That's an important word. Don't lose sight of this because so many people challenge the Bible as just being up by men. They were clever. They made this stuff up. They speculated here. The Apostle Paul was just a polymath. He knew what he was doing and he wrote this all down. No, 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 no. That's not how the Bible talks. It is wisdom from above. It is gifted wisdom. It is divine wisdom. So let us receive the Bible the apostolic writings in light of our due admiration of the giver. Do you love the giver? Then love what he has gifted us in the word of God. Love the word as you love Christ. It is in the written word that the beauties of the living word are shed forth. Now, the big question. You see how he talks about He has written unto you. So which letters are they? Who, which, sorry, which letters is Peter referring to? Now, we can't be totally sure here, right? He just doesn't tell us. Now, here, though, the commentaries get awfully wordy and come up with all kinds of speculative ideas. Now, maybe if you're thinking, well, which letters of Paul could it be? Some of the the kingpin letters are Romans, because it talks about long-suffering. Hebrews, because Hebrews talks about the day of the Lord so much. And then obviously people that think that way think the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews. But we've got to just step back for a second and ask, well, to who is Peter writing? Because if we know to whom Peter is writing, we will also know to whom Paul wrote. So we've got to ask the who. But the other thing we've got to ask is, well, the what? What question? Because he says the same thing. So we've got the who and the question of the, of the, the subject. So do we know to whom Second Peter is written? And as we saw two years ago, we believe it was written to the churches in Asia Minor. So that limits the letters we're talking about. Now, what's the main subject in view? Well, it could be limited to, as you see in verse 15, the long-suffering of our Lord. But the main point, the backdrop subject, is the return of Christ. So we've got two things. We've got Asia Minor subject of the return of Christ. Which letters would fit that? Three. Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians. Those three. And I think that is the most likely letters. In fact, two examples from two of those. Ephesians 4, verse 30, talking about coupling holiness with the return of Christ. Right? That's Peter's thrust here. It says this, Ephesians 4.30, And grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Colossians 1.22, And you hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to what end? To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. That's a forward-gazing look with a holy life now. And I believe that Those three letters are what Peter is referring to, because that makes the most sense. So, why bring that up? 
Because it is important to receive the apostles as speaking with one voice and that it wasn't always one apostle who wrote to one region. Many of them, some of them wrote. And so you would receive a collective wisdom from the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it doesn't get any easier because now we move to verse 16. Where he says, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, which, in which some things are hard to be understood. Peter here goes beyond the letters to Asia Minor, so most likely Ephesians, Galatians, and Colossians. And he now says, also in all his epistles, all of his letters, speaking of these things. So what do we learn from that? First of all, we know from church history and from this that Paul's letters most likely already very early on circulated as packages in the region. They were highly valued, and so they would be bundled together. And so all these letters together spoke with solidarity. So don't pit Peter against Paul, but also don't pit Colossians against Galatians and Ephesians against Thessalonians. Don't do that. They're bundles together. They're one. Notice also, and here's the biggest point we need to take home, what Peter calls Paul's letters. You see it in the text? Scriptures. See that at the end of verse 16? When it talks about what the unbelievers do with it? The other scriptures. They, these unbelievers rest other scriptures as well. It's an interesting word because the word other, loipoi in the Greek, means of the same kind, of the same genre. And the term scriptures is graphe. And graphe throughout the New Testament always, always, always gets used for God's holy covenant documents to his covenant people. And so this is very powerful because Peter already, while writing scripture, i.e. Second Peter, is calling Paul's letters scripture. Putting them in the same weight class as the Old Testament canon. Now often, if you like reading on these things, you will hear that the New Testament gets criticized for being of a late Creation in AD 325 at the Council of Nicaea. That is not true, and we have internal evidence right here that that is not the case. The church was already receiving the collective wisdom of the Apostle Paul and here Peter and others, and already affirming them, expecting those words, expecting covenant documents. Because you've got to step back for a second. When God does great cataclysmic works, when the new Elijah comes, John the Baptist, and when Jesus comes and dies and ushers in the new age, and he commissions apostles, the church of God, the covenant people, would expect with that in ushering of the new eschaton, the new age, they would expect covenant documents to go along with it. So it is actually no surprise that he calls these letters scripture. And so that's exciting, that's great, that's wonderful. And Christians, then, we should be lovers of the Scriptures. Be a reader of the Scripture. Love to place yourself under the Scriptures. Do you do that? 
So many Christians let weeks pass by and they do not crack the Bible or they hardly read the Bible. This is God's letters to the church to feast on, to be strengthened with, to exhort one another with. And we will run at coffee time and discuss cows and tractors and fence posts and all kinds of benign stuff. And we will not talk about Jesus Christ because we are not hard, our hearts are not warmed to him in the morning. Because we hardly take time for him. And so this is important. How do you value the word? And this is probably the most important question to ask yourself. Do I hear the voice of the shepherd in the word? Do you? Now, if you do read the Bible and you study it faithfully, perhaps you've read the difficult teachings on doctrines of election, union with Christ, Israel's hardening, Romans 10 and 11, questions of law and gospel, or the coming of the man of sin in Thessalonians. And you read that and you're simply confused. Have you ever had that? Well, you read, but I don't have a clue what this means. I'm reading it, but it really, I, don't, I just don't know. Peter recognizes the difficulty. Peter recognizes the difficulty. You hear that? Peter has a hard time with some of Paul's stuff. That's quite something in which some things are hard to be understood. In fact, if you've never had this, I'm kind of concerned about you. Because if we think we have climbed the summit of the knowledge of God, I think we've actually shown that we've never really begun to touch the base of the mountain of the doctrine of God Almighty. You know why I say that? It is because reflecting on God, on his holiness, on his greatness, on his eternality, on his power, to name a few doctrines, is trying to comprehend him who is by nature incomprehensible. You will never scale the mountain. You will only grow in degrees and see, as one Puritan would write, as you go over one cliff and you think you've arrived at something, what you see is what you never saw before, that as you pass over that little crevice, you're looking at another mountain peak that is growing and growing, and God only enlarges as the soul of man is feasting on God in the scriptures. And so God is incomprehensible. So we should not be surprised that Paul, writing about the incomprehensible God, speaks of very difficult things. Now, the Roman Catholic Church loves this verse because they say, ah, there's hard stuff. So who do you need to teach you? Our clergy, our Pope, who speaks ex cathedra at times. And so it was a verse they abused to get their way. as wrong. Because look what Peter says about this. It, he doesn't say all things. He doesn't say everything is confusing and everything is difficult. He says some things. It's an important word. Some things. Why is this important? It is important because we can tell our children the basics of the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, and the doctrine of salvation, and they can understand it. In fact, the Bible teaches us that the eternality and the power of God are plainly revealed, Romans 1.20. And it also tells us that everybody knows when they break the law. A two-year-old knows. You ever had a two-year-old stick his hand in the cookie jar and look at you? 
He knows. Because he's got a conscience written on his heart. And so he knows God, the natural man, and he knows sin. And when he breaks the law of God, but what does he not know that is at the same time easy to be understood? It is what we are to proclaim. Romans 10. How beautiful are the feet of them that what? Proclaim good news. Euangelitsa, the gospel. And so we herald a gospel that is simple, that a child can understand it. And we tell our two-year-old that they are lawbreakers to the holy God. And they get some of it, not, not comprehensively. And we tell them about Jesus Christ, who died for sinners. And that gospel is a simple gospel. So what's the take home? Parents, tell your children the gospel. Don't fail to remind them of these beautiful gifts, these simple truths, and yet so profound. But to summarize this section, there are difficult teachings in the Bible. If you've got Romans 11 figured out, come to me. I'd like to know. Regarding the difficult passages, why are they there? Why didn't God just make everything simple, kindergarten style, easy, picture books? It is because the difficult passages, as the Puritans would write, are there to confound our empty pretenses of knowing it all. You see, difficult passages humble us. And they cause us to stop our mouths for a second. And what do they do? They stir up prayer and diligent study. And so mine the scriptures carefully, tread wisely, and compare, as they would say in the Analogia Scriptura, scripture with scripture. Take the clear to interpret the unclear. Don't go the other way around or you'll start a cult in a hurry. But also, stand on the shoulders of those who have come before Mine the minds of those who have walked closest with Jesus Christ throughout history. Stand on the shoulders of the giants who love Christ. And also, although it is not all clear, handle it with a trusting manner. Because this is an important doctrine. We may apprehend, but we will never fully comprehend And so when you apprehend doctrines like the hardening of Israel, apprehend the doctrine of election and the man of sin, it's in the scripture. So believe it because God said it. But don't expect to always understand, but trust the word of God. Paul says this, let God be true and every man a liar. You see, God is faithful to what he has written, so apprehend it by faith. Now, that's how we ought to respond, but what did the scoffers do? He tells us what the scoffers do, doesn't he? Look at the rest of this verse. Which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scripture unto their own destruction. Now, the word unlearned is kind of an interesting word. It's got the the Greek root of mathetes, disciple, but it puts a little negation in front of it unlearned, not discipled. You see, these scoffers don't want to be told anything. They like the places of prominence, much like the Pharisees. How many have wanted to be teachers, but have never wanted to be a disciple first? 
Is that you? Perhaps you have aspirations of teaching, but you don't want to be learning first. Tread with fear. James warns us, he says, Let not many be masters, for unto them is the greater condemnation. You see, careless misinterpretation of Scripture is inexcusable. Now, these teachers could have a PhD, know the languages really well, be experts in church history and architecture and ancient cultures, but they may be absolutely dead inside. But they will gain a following if they're good speakers. But if they're not taught of God, watch out. They are deceiving. The Bible says the natural man receiveth not the things of God, things of the Spirit of God, for why? They are foolishness unto him. Neither, this is almost more shocking, can he know it, because they are spiritually discerned. So what does that mean? Teachers of the word of God need to be spiritually taught first. All the time in seminary cannot undo a cold, dead heart. But he adds to this, not only are they unlearned, he says they're unstable. That is a further recipe for disaster. The only other place in the Bible where the word unstable is used is where? In this letter, of course, because Peter likes using rare words and he just uses them for himself. Second Peter 2.14. Look back. Having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. So what do you have here? The perfect recipe for starting a cult or a sect or something like that. Why? Unstable teachers beguiling unstable souls. Two plus two equals five at this point. And what does it say? They rest the scriptures. What does that mean? That the root of the word to rest is actually to torture, to twist on the rack. You know how they would take the people they were torturing and they'd contort their arms or shred their bodies in different ways. Think of that's what these people are doing to the Bible. They are shredding it. They are twisting it, turning it into something it never was appointed to do. And this is important because false teachers are largely identified by undoing and twisting the gospel. The scriptures were given for salvation and false teachers put a twist on it And now you have some form of works righteousness, some form of another Jesus, some form of another hope. And it's a hope that will ultimately end in yourself. And that is why Peter says it is a hope that ends in destruction. You see that? Twisting scripture is ultimately a recipe for hell. Now, maybe you've said this But I'm sure you've heard this. You have your interpretation. I have mine. You ever heard that? Maybe you've said it. And you almost comfort yourself with that. Yeah, that's that's okay. That is not okay. You're not allowed to make up your own interpretations. How many cults have been started by fanciful speculations? Simple truth is often complicated because these people want to feel their pride and their power, but most of all, their gospel. 
And so don't just run to your own interpretation. You got yours, I got mine. That is dangerous because it's not, a, it's not an attitude of submissiveness. And maybe that's our biggest problem. I have talked to so many people, quoted scripture. What do you think of the Bible? Oh, it's the word of God. But as soon as the simple truths even are expounded upon, the heels go up because they do not want to submit. Is that you? Do you read the Bible with a desire to submit or a desire to take, twist, and turn into an own, your own path? Novelty is a volatile substance. Oh, it doesn't just stop with one compromised doctrine. Oh, I believe, you know, this is okay or that's okay. You know, we've we got to redefine marriage a bit here or let's have women elders, or let's have this or that. It doesn't just stop with one doctrine. You see, when one thing is in jeopardy, all things are in jeopardy. Do you know, do you actually know what your teachers understand about core doctrines? Have you ever asked them? And, and we, can, we can step outside of this church. Do you know your elders and what they believe? But let's step outside because you have podcasts that are going into your minds. You have books you read. You have friends you talk to. They are your teachers. Do you know what they believe about core doctrine? Or do you never ask the question? Watch out. And so let us learn from God-fearing, Christ-exalting teachers. Probably the, the quick litmus test in the cup of Scripture's water is this. Are your teachers preaching centrally the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if they are not, you might as well move on. Last point. It's a briefer point. Verse 15. I didn't finish it. If you noticed, there's something I missed. Last point. A trusting mindset. Look back at verse 15. I didn't talk about the beginning. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And so Peter has said, as we have seen, do not only pursue a holy life, a life of readiness. Do not only handle the word of God faithfully and consistently as scripture. Those were the first two points. But finally, have a trusting mindset as you press forward on this journey of life. Why? Why does he say this? Because look back at the bookend here of verse 10. We see the word long-suffering in verse 10 and in verse 15. You see that? And it's all about the question of now. How do we account for the idea that Jesus hasn't come back yet? What do we do with that? Well, well the scoffers, they know what to do. They say God is slack. God is messing up. God's not keeping his promises. And Peter's explained that's not the case. But look the word count or consider is in verse 9 when it says count slackness. That's where I think I said verse 10 earlier, but verse 9 is the word long-suffering. So these men count the delay as slackness. Okay? Peter says in verse 15, no, 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 he says, account, same Greek word, the long-suffering, not as slackness, but as salvation. You see, there's going to be two ways you will walk through this time, this brief time between now and Christ's return. You're either going to deem Jesus as slack, and so I can do whatever I want, or you are going to deem it a time of salvation. Which one will it be for you? And what does that mean? 
It means count this a time very positively. How do you consider the times? I talk with so many people and I catch myself in this too. Well, what's going on in our nation? Well, we doomsday. Things are going bad. Canada's going south. The law of God is being forsaken. They are casting down the word of God, his standards, his holiness. Marriages are being destroyed. And Christians become glum and doomsdayish. Where Peter actually says the opposite. Count, consider this time a time of salvation. That's how we're supposed to walk away. Yes, identify the problems, but may the smile of God's sovereignty of this time come in our hearts and lives, knowing that it is now the season of gospel proclamation and truth. It is now the season in which the sheep will hear the voice of the shepherd. It is the season in which broken hearts will be saved. And so it is really sad that Christians will wall up And go into cloisters as it were. Because the world out there is scary. And I don't want to go there. Because look how bad it is. No, no. Go into the highways. Go into the byways. And compel them to come in. Draw the sinners in. Because the sheep of the shepherd will hear the voice of the shepherd. And everyone who is elected of God Almighty will come. So go out there with hope. Go out there with vigilance. Go out there with earnestness. Now, you might be thinking, well, yeah, okay, Paul, I've done that. I, I've tried this with my neighbors. I've tried this with my friends. I've tried this with my spouse. They don't want it. They've spurned it. And you get disheartened, don't you? You've prayed, you've prayed, you've pled for your lost child. And they don't want it. They keep living for this broken, combustible world. And you feel powerless? You feel impotent? Is that you? Is that you this morning? You came this morning feeling impotent and powerless and like, well, I just come on Sundays because it's, it's what we do. Oh no, that's not how the Bible now calls us, commands us to live. It says, account it a time of salvation, not a time of gospel loss. Because God guarantees that through the means of his saints pleading, praying, seeking, witnessing, living holy lives, that that is the vehicle by which God, through secondary means, will draw in his elect. You see, oh, absolutely, the gospel we proclaim is urgent. Don't undo the urgency. It is sincere. If you come with lightheartedness, you've undone a sincere gospel call. It is well meant. Do you mean it when you tell your friend, you are on the path to hell. Repent and return and turn to Jesus Christ. Do you mean it? Or do they think it's kind of just some sales pitch? Oh, do you mean it? And be serious. The word of God is sharp. It is quick and powerful. But also, and this is our hope, and that is why we may count it a time of salvation. It is the word that in these seasons is spirit-empowered, where the spirit accompanies the heralding of the word through broken vessels. The spirit goes into hearts and begets them anew. And they believe and are saved. 
And so the Apostle Paul in Acts, he says when he was in Corinth, he imagined Corinth was such a pagan city. God says to him, he says, be not afraid. And then he says these words that we need to take to the bank. He says, for I have much people in this city. How many people do you think he has in Pinoca? I don't know. But don't be afraid. His elect will hear the voice of the shepherd. So be faithful. Be faithful. I'm going to close with a story from Spurgeon along these lines. Spurgeon says this. He says, I have read of a woman who prayed long for her husband. She used to attend a certain meeting house in the north of England, but her husband never went with her. He was a drinking, swearing man, and she had much anguish of heart about him. But she never ceased to pray, and yet she never saw any result. She went to the meeting house quite alone, with this one exception, that a dog always went with her. And this faithful animal would curl himself up under the seat and lie quietly during the service. When she was dead, the woman then, her husband was still unsaved. But Doggy went to the meeting house. His master wondered whatever the faithful animal did at the service. So curiosity made him follow the good creature. The dog led him down the aisle to his dear old mistress's seat. The man sat on the seat, and the dog curled himself up as usual. God guided the minister that day. The word came with power. And that man wept till he found Jesus. So, dear people, Spurgeon says, never give up, you husbands, good women, for the Lord may even use a dog to bring them to Christ when you are dead and gone. Never give up praying, hoping, expecting, fear not, believe. Perhaps it's you this morning that has come so many times to church, but you've never actually closed with Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never given it thought. You're in love with this sinking Titanic called this world. Perhaps it's not that. Perhaps you consider yourself too wicked to be saved. Man, if, if you only knew, I'm not, I'm not nearly like you guys. I'm worse. I'm so much worse. Today, God calls both Mr. Worldly and Mr. Self-Pity, Mr. Broken. He calls you and I to come to the one refuge for Jesus Christ. Jesus who stretched himself on the cross to die for all who would trust in him. And he bids us come. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When will that be for you, you young people, you aged people, you? And when will you come to Jesus? Come to him to receive the rich robes of Christ's righteousness that will be that great Security on that day when our Lord Jesus comes back. Oh, just come. Come to him.
Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures which are able to make a man wise unto salvation. Oh God, I pray that you would give each of us boldness, hope, expectancy, and to count this a time of salvation. We thank you for the word. Lord, may we feast on the written and the living word, the Lord Jesus, as we meditate upon him. In his name we pray. Amen.